Thanks for listening today to In 16 Years. I'm Amy, and this is a podcast where I talk about what I've learned in 16 years of living with stage 4 endo, severe IBS, fibromyalgia, and interstitial cystitis. My name is Brittany, and I live with celiac disease, anxiety, and my own hormonal fun. We hope this show will inspire you, empower you, and help you feel supported on your own health journey. Brittany and I are not doctors, dietitians, mental health professionals, experts on endometriosis, or any kind of qualified medical professional. So that means that none of the information we share on this podcast is medical or mental health advice. If you get inspired by something we say, always consult your qualified medical professional first before making any changes. Today we're so excited to welcome Dr. Vimy Bindra. Dr. Bindra is an endometriosis excision surgeon at Apollo Hospitals in Hyderabad, India, where she leads a multidisciplinary team of endometriosis care, which includes an excision surgeon, a gynecologist, a colorectal surgeon, a urology surgeon, a thoracic surgeon, a nutritionist, a pelvic physiotherapist, and a mental health counselor. Dr. Binger is also the director of the Center for PCOS and Endometriosis. She did her advanced laparoscopy and hysteroscopy training from Clermont Ferrand in France and also Mumbai. She has vast surgical experience in different types of laparoscopic and hysteroscopic surgeries. And in today's episode, Dr. Binja brings her experience to answer questions about excision, such as technique, the use of imaging preoperatively, and surgery for endometriomas, bladder, and bowel endometriosis. Dr. Binja firmly believes that there needs to be transformational change in endometriosis for people globally and in India. She's working with doctors and endometriosis advocates worldwide to improve the standards of care. Her goal is achieving awareness, timely diagnosis, quality surgery, and post-surgical care for all people with endometriosis. Additionally, she's an endometriosis educator and co-founder of the support group Endocrusaders for people with endometriosis. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Vimy Bindra to the show today. And we've gone ahead and we've put all of the various links to Dr. Bindra's medical practice, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and more in the show notes today. Hi, Vimy. Welcome to the show today. We are so happy to have you here. Thank you, Amy. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I am Dr. Vimy Bindra from Hyderabad, India. I specialize in minimally invasive gynec surgeries, especially endometriosis excision surgeries. So Vimy, since you're an excision surgeon, we wanted to ask you some questions about excision surgery. First, we wanted to ask you a little bit about how you came into doing excision. So I'd love if you could tell us a little bit about how you learned about excision and how you adopted the technique. That's a very nice question because uh, endometriosis excision surgery should be done by a dedicated team. All of us know that, but you need to have that passion and a desire to serve people suffering with endometriosis. I have been trained in minimally invasive gynecology. I have finished my fellowships in Mumbai and also I went to France for inv minimally invasive training. And after that, I, when I started practicing, I realized that endometriosis patients were suffering a lot. They were having multiple surgeries, multiple failed surgeries without any good outcome. 
And then I started following Dr. David Redbine's work and I got so inspired that when he started doing excision surgeries and the outcomes for people suffering with endometriosis were very good, they were long-term and they did not need multiple surgeries and I adopted his technique of excision and started doing it and I can really appreciate and see the results which my patients are enjoying the fruits of those excision surgeries, those long excision surgeries where we toil hard with different specialties and try to give them the best outcomes. So this is how it inspired me. And I started doing excision surgeries, seeing the outcome and the suffering which these patients had with multiple surgeries, we could minimize that. Wow, that's so interesting that you were inspired by Dr. Redwa. And I certainly think he's an inspiration. And, you know, I think he's really helped change the face of endometriosis surgery and, and bring excision worldwide. What do you think about retrograde menstruation? Do you think that's the cause of endometriosis? Absolutely no, Amy. I think Samson made that theory and uh, the whole world believed it. Now, if retrograde menstruation was the cause of endometriosis, I would have been an endometriosis patient too. So retrograde menstruation does not cause endometriosis. I believe in theory of malariosis given by Dr. David Redfine. And there is a lot of genetics and epigenetics involved with endometriosis pathogenesis. So retrograde menstruation is something which cannot explain endometriosis at the nail bed, endometriosis in the eyelids, endometriosis in your thorax, how do you explain it? This theory does not work and the whole world has believed it now. It's very difficult to change people's belief and their uh, ideas or perceptions about something. So that is why it's taking decades and decades and we are not able to change the perception and same kind of treatment is being followed till date. So there has to be a phenomenal change uh, where the endometriosis practice has to be changed from the medical to the excision surgery like that. Also, the theories which have been instilled into people's mind that this is responsible uh, because uh, the treatment or any cure or any therapy comes with the origin of disease. Now, uh, the origin of disease has been considered wrong. So how can we come to a cure or a better treatment for a disease where we don't know the origin of the disease. So theory of mullerisis explains this disease at different locations. The more research should be dedicated towards that so that we can come to some kind of uh, treatment or a gene therapy which will help our patients in the future. So retrograde menstruation does not work. No, I don't believe in it. I'd love to ask you how many cases of excision do you do per year? And do you know what your recurrence rates are? Do you track those? Yes, we do follow our patients. And here I would like to say that starting from the outpatient department, we see almost seven to 8,000 outpatient department, out of which around 2,500 patients present to us with pelvic pain. And approximately 800 to 900 patients be diagnosed with endometriosis. Now, many patients are coming only for consultation or sometimes they come for second opinion as well. 
out of these diagnosed endometriosis patients, approximately we operate on 250 to 300 per year. And we do follow these patients. We follow them at three months, six months, nine months, and one year. And as per our data, the recurrence rate in our uh, population is around 10% if excision is done completely. And that's quite an acceptable rate of recurrence. In majority of the studies done worldwide, complete excision surgery has a recurrence rate of 8 to 10%. So when the patient presents to us, we follow them with a questionnaire and we record their symptoms and their visual analog scores in terms of pains for following the AGL endo tab. This tab is available. We record our data on that. We follow these patients post-operatively at three, six, nine months and one year. And at six months, we also get their ultrasound done to see for any residual disease or any recurrence. Now, residual disease, if the surgery is done by an excision expert and we know that excision is complete, so residual disease criteria does not come into picture. So for our patients, we look for the recurrence. If any lesions have come back, we count it as recurrence. And this amounts to our recurrence rate of around 10%. The residual disease we see for patients who have been operated outside. So we look for the any lesions which have not been removed or is there any growth of new lesions on comparison at a six monthly interval on ultrasound. So this is how we track our patients and try to follow them and look at the operative outcomes as well. Great. That's really interesting to hear that you do that because I know that, you know, there's a lot of surgeons who like in my own case, my surgeon operated on me and then it was just like, okay, bye. And, you know, there was no talk of like follow-ups unless of course I was having problems, but no talk of follow-up. There was no multidisciplinary team in place for me to continue care with. That was all things that I had to figure out on my own. I do want to ask you a bit about imaging, but a bit later on. So we'll come back to that, the ultrasound and the imaging and what we can see on that. But for now, I'd love if you could talk a little bit about, I know that you work as part of a multidisciplinary team, you take a multidisciplinary approach to endometriosis. And I would love to hear what kind of specialists you have on your team to take this multidisciplinary approach. So when we talk about endometriosis excision surgery, we always talk about a multidisciplinary team. So what does this mean? I would like to tell our audience. Like multidisciplinary team is usually a gynecologist-led team who is trained in excision surgeries. Endometriosis is a whole body disease. All of us know that. And endometriosis does not involve only the uterus or tubes or ovaries. It involves bowel. It involves ureter. It involves extra pelvic sites. Also, it has effect on your social, physical, emotional well-being as well. So endometriosis should be addressed by a multidisciplinary team comprising of a psychological counselor, a dietitian, a pelvic physiotherapist, and in the surgical team, there should be excision expert along with a urosurgeon, a colorectal surgeon, a cardiothoracic surgeon to address the diaphragmatic and the thoracic endo, and Depending on the location of endometriosis and its involvement, the surgical team can be extended to neurosurgeon as well. So this is how endometriosis multidisciplinary team looks like, where 
preoperative care is provided by a set of people then the operative care and the post operative care involves the pelvic physiotherapist the counseling part and the diet part so this is very important when we talk about endometriosis management in patients who are suffering because the endometriosis plays a vital role on their psychological well-being as well and this cannot be neglected surgery is just a part of it we need to look at their preoperative operative and postoperative well-being and the long term outcomes so this is how a multidisciplinary team works where a gynecologist who is a trained excision expert guides the other surgical team in excising the involved area so if somebody is having a thoracic endometriosis a gynecologist who is trained excision expert can identify endometriosis which a cardiothoracic surgeon may not so we guide them in excision so they come to our operative room whenever there is a rectal involvement or a interspinal involvement a colorectal surgeon comes in so in conjunction or in association we operate on the patient so that we get the optimum surgical outcomes now as a colorectal surgeon they don't know about endometriosis but a endometriosis excision expert guides them that this is a nodule this is the extent i want a clear margin of 1 cm of the nodule and this much needs to be excised now when we guide them they really because they have more knowledge of colorectal anatomy and they operate on it every day so definitely we need their help and they need our help to assess how much to excise similarly a urosurgeon what they do now a nodule which is near the uterosacral compressing the ureter may cause a renal damage a permanent renal damage where sometimes patients may land up with nephrectomy so there we uh, need the urosurgeon's help to sometimes dissect the ureter or when we are doing a ureteric reimplantation we are creating a new uh, ureteric orifice we need their help so this is how this multidisciplinary team work where we can get the best surgical outcomes for our patients so always look for surgeons who are working in a multidisciplinary team so that your surgery is complete at one go sometimes when we counsel the patient for surgery we take them we do counsel them if we find endometriosis at any other location which is not mentioned in your imaging we are taking their consent that we are going to excise that as well so that you don't land up with another procedure so a very important aspect of endometriosis treatment is having a multidisciplinary team i think it's interesting and also helpful that you have on your team you named the pelvic floor physical therapist the dietitian and the psychological counselor so i'm just wondering once the patient has excision surgery with you what is their post excision treatment care look like so i would divide this question into two parts like immediate post excision and few weeks later so immediate post excision when you wake up from the excision surgery you may have some pain the wounds may feel little sore where we have given incision on your abdomen you may have a urethral catheter or a foley's catheter in place for drainage of the bladder and there may be another drainage pipe which we usually put in the intraperitoneal cavity for monitoring some of the complications so this is how you wake up but the very next day 
if there is no bladder surgery or if you have not operated on the bladder, we remove the indwelling catheter so that you can walk to the washroom and empty your bladder yourself. Now, the very next day, we try to ambulate you. The early ambulation gives you early recovery. And once you ambulate and we are not expecting major complications with the bowel or ureter, we remove the intraperitoneal drain as well. But we keep the drain a little longer if there is an intestinal resection or we want to keep you monitoring for any uh, leakage or any other complications. And within 24 hours or 48 hours maximum, most of the patients are discharged. But when we do segmental resection, we would like to keep you for minimum of three to five days till we are very sure that there is no leak and we are not expecting any complications. Now, postoperatively for patients who reside in Hyderabad, mostly they will come for follow-up at one week and then one month interval. Patients who are coming from abroad or our international patients when we have done intestinal resection, we want them to stay in the city for at least three weeks post-surgery. And those who don't, we don't expect any complications, they can go back within two weeks. Now, post-excision, we advise you to start on anti-inflammatory diet, maybe in a week or two weeks time when you get comfortable with the post-surgery. And after a month, I tell all my patients to start themselves on pelvic physiotherapy. So this is a routine for all the patients. Some patients opt for it. Some patients don't opt for it. The choice is given to them. But we recommend for every patient that they should do pelvic physiotherapy and an anti-inflammatory diet. And then they are advised to come for follow-ups at one month, three months, six months, and so on. And Postoperative care also varies from patient to patient depending on their requirement for fertility and the pain management. So for some patients, it's pain and fertility both. For some, it is only fertility and for some, it is only pain. So the follow-up depends on their requirement and what uh, we are planning for them. Because many of these patients are referred by IVF specialists on whom we operate as a fertility enhancing surgery. So their management will be a little different from our routine patients for excision. Every time I hear you speak about your team and about your multidisciplinary approach, I just continue to be more and more impressed. I just think it's so amazing that you have this team in place to address all these different aspects of endometriosis patient care, because it really is a full body disease and it really does need that team approach. And, you know, I think it can be hard because not every excision surgeon has the team in place because they maybe they don't work at an endometriosis specialty center or, you know, I know my own surgeon was just working out of the hospital that he was at. So, you know, he wasn't able to provide all this different post-excision care and recommendations. That burden was on my shoulders to do it on my own and to find the pelvic floor physical therapist and to find a nutritionist that could help me with my specific dietary changes. So I just really respect that you have all of that in place and that you really do look at and approach endometriosis from the full body patient approach. I'd love to ask you what the first appointment with your team looks like. What does it look like? I'm sure it's a little different for everyone because of course people are coming in some with pain, some with infertility. 
But generally, what does a first appointment with you look like? How long is it? What kind of things do you talk about with the patient? So at first appointment, when patients come to us, there is a detailed history taking where we look at their symptoms with duration and visual analog scores for their pain. And for infertility patients, the history varies a little bit. Now, the first appointment may last for around 45 minutes to one hour for new patients whom we have not seen earlier. After history taking, we also go through their complete surgical notes, if any, or the previous imaging or previous doctor's consultation notes, because most of these patients have already gone to multiple specialists. And that is when we know that endometriosis diagnosis also gets delayed for a longer time because they keep going to specialists without getting a definitive diagnosis. So after evaluating all that, we take patient's consent for the physical examination. Now, physical examination, we do an abdominal examination, a local examination. Paraspeculum examination is very important in which a small instrument is inserted into the vagina to look for any vaginal lesions and the cervix. Cervical smear, if patient wants it, we do it. Or if they have not done it, we make it a routine to do a cervical smear or a pap smear test as well. After this, we proceed with the vaginal examination. Now, in vaginal examination, we look for the uterine size, the uterosacrals, and tenderness elicited on examination. This is very important because sometimes with pain, patients do not allow vaginal examination. Sometimes patient refuses that they don't want examination because it is very painful and they cannot take it then definitely we respect patient's decision and we do not force them that will examine. For some patients, we can also do a per-rectal examination in which sometimes there is a nodule in the rectovaginal septum can be elicited better. So this is how the examination is done. After that, a patient is advised for imaging. Most of our patients go for ultrasound because our sonologist is very good at mapping the lesions. So the first line imaging for all my patients is ultrasound in which they are advised to take a stool softener one day prior to the scan appointment. We try to schedule our scan appointments from day five to day nine of the cycle. But for some outstation patients or patients coming from abroad, we might do it at any time of the cycle. So this is how the first appointment looks like. Most of our patients usually either do an online consultation or schedule their surgeries in advance. So things are streamlined. Their appointment with me and my sonologist is already booked. So after meeting me, after the physical examination, they go for the ultrasound. And the very next day, they meet me. And after seeing the report, we plan their surgery. We discuss the complications and everything and we schedule them. Wow, that is so thorough. <laughs> That's amazing. I'd love to ask you a question about after a person has excision surgery, what are some of the reasons why a person could continue to have pain post-excision? Post-excision pain, as I already said, Amy, that excision is only a part of it. Now, post-excision pain may be because of various reasons. A patient who has undergone multiple surgeries, there will be a lot of fibrosis. That may be a surgery-induced fibrosis and inflammation as well. So that is one of the reasons which causes pain. Myofascial factors are also there. 
and there are multiple pelvic pain generators which may be responsible for post excision pain now in general when we do excision we also tell our patients that first 2 to 3 periods may be more painful post excision that's the reason many of the experts believe in prescribing some oral contraceptive pills or progesterone based medications such as dynogest post surgery for first 3 months now pelvic pain other than the endometriosis pain if they are feeling most of these are because of the fibrosis induced by multiple surgeries and the pelvic pain generators here comes the role of a good pelvic floor physiotherapist where they help them cope up with that pain and also a consultation with a pain specialist helps so endometriosis excision i'm always saying and repeating it again that it is just a part of it the pain management involves a lot of things like physiotherapy for some pain specialties clinic helps them for some acupuncture helps so these are the things which people can adopt and improve their pain and quality of life the next question i want to ask you is what is your opinion on ablation surgery now when you ask this question to excision surgeon uh, it's difficult to answer because we don't believe in ablation now ablation is a process which just burns the superficial surface of it and we all know that endometriosis is like a iceberg phenomena in which what we see is just a portion of it but there is a depth involvement in all the endometriosis lesions which with ablation we miss it and we leave the active disease inside so ablation in endometriosis does not work but it is still being widely practiced that is the reason patients pain and quality of life does not improve if they undergo ablation surgery so we do not believe in ablation because we understand the pathophysiology of endometriosis where the lesions are much much deeper then the ablation works ablation works on the superficial surface just burns the superficial layer so deeper area it does not work that is where the scooping of the lesions or excision helps so we don't practice ablation and we don't recommend it as well wow with me i just have so many questions to ask you that i just think you're so knowledgeable Let's move on to some questions about excision, general questions about excision. So, I know that you mentioned that part of your preoperative preparation includes an ultrasound. So, I just wanted to ask you, do you ever get an MRI or do you mainly rely on ultrasound? I know you said your sonographer is really good, which is important because we know that just like with excision surgery with so many things in medicine that you know the quality of an ultrasound really also depends on the operator the person who is doing the ultrasound and the expertise and the technique that the operator has so i'm just wondering do you ever get an mri in any cases and then how do you use the imaging to prepare for your surgery the first line of imaging is ultrasound for all the patients we do mri in approximately 10 to 15% of the patients as you rightly said that it is operator dependent definitely a proper training and expertise is needed to interpret endometriotic lesions on ultrasound that is the reason one more reason for delay in diagnosis because even ultrasound and mri are being reported as normal and patients are being dismissed that you don't have endometriosis 
So it is operator dependent and operator is very, very important for mapping the lesions. So first line is ultrasound and in 10 to 15% of the patients, we do MRI. We do MRI in early endo lesions when there is a chance that we might have missed on ultrasound because these lesions are very superficial, may not be picked up on ultrasound, the peritoneal lesions. We do MRI for patients where the lesions are not very well-defined and they have undergone multiple surgeries. And we do MRI for patients where nerve involvement is suspected, like sciatic nerve involvement or any other nerve involvement with the endo lesions. So definitely for these patients, we do MRI. Or when my sonologist is not in town, then I definitely do MRI so that I can read MRI and take them for surgery. So a good ultrasound usually can pick up the majority of lesions other than very early endo or superficial peritoneal endo. Imaging is very helpful in guiding for surgery, counseling the patient and preventing post-operative complications as well. Now, if an imaging tells me that the bowel lesion is this big, involving this much circumference of the bowel, I talk to my patient that you have a lesion which is this big and for this lesion, you need a segmental resection. Now, segmental resection involves complications which a patient should be aware of. If I do a segmental resection, they may get an anastomotic leak, which is a major complication, and she may land up, end up having a stoma. Now, stoma means we stop the distal end of the bowel, close it, we make a stoma or a hole in the abdominal wall, and the bowels are functional through that in a bag. Now, this is a complication which patients should be aware of. So when we are planning a surgery, patient should be told, so a good imaging can help me plan my surgery. The team involved, suppose it is a urologist to be involved or it is a cardiothoracic surgeon to be involved. So they should be available. So it helps me in planning the surgery in a better way and preventing the post-operative complication or anticipating the complications which my patient may encounter. So a good imaging is very important in terms of the success of the surgery, completeness of the surgery because of the multiple teams involved. Suppose I take a patient for a surgery and I find a lesion at a diaphragm, which I'm not aware of, and a cardiothoracic surgeon is not available. So we cannot abandon the procedure like that. So it helps us in planning, complications, counseling the patient, and having good surgical outcomes. So a good imaging is very, very important for endometriosis excision surgeries. So all the patients, I would tell them that they should look for sonologists or some of the excision surgeons do their scans on their own. I also do, but because of the busy practice, sometimes I don't get time. So my sonologist gives me a detailed report so that I can plan my surgeries better. So this is a very, very vital role, which it plays in our practice. Yeah, I think it's really important to know what you're getting into before you go into surgery and also so that the patient can be fully aware that, you know, you suspect that they have bowel endometriosis or bladder endometriosis, and these could potentially be 
the risks, the benefits, the post-operative care. Since you're in India, I'm curious, do you stage the endometriosis that you see? A lot of the surgeons here, they use the ASRM, which has stage one, stage two, stage three. I know that other surgeons internationally use the Enzian system where it's more about like, here's the location and the size. And then you get this coordinate of numbers like battleship, like A0 and B1 and C3. So I'm just wondering, what do you use to stage the patient or do you not stage the patient? We do stage them and we stage them on ultrasound and we stage them surgically as well. So now we are using Enzian classification. I would like to call it a hashtag Enzian, which is the latest one. It was published in January 2021, where they included peritoneal ovarian and tubal lesions, along with the other components, which was already there in Enzian. So Enzian classification, my sonologist, she writes the report in the Enzian classification, where she mentions where all the involvement is. It is a very good method, and it is a very, I can say it's a common language between a sonologist and a surgeon. So this is used by her and we also use it during surgery and we have compared our results as well with that sonologically she could pick up in 98% of the cases her findings were matching with our surgical findings. So sensitivity and specificity of her ultrasound in detecting all these lesions is very good and NGN classification, the new classification because it includes all the lesions which were not in the previous classification. I feel that it is much better than ASRM in communicating and giving the information to the other surgeon. If I have operated a patient and I have written like P3, O3 by 3, T3 by 3, it's very easily readable. It's very easily, you can imagine what lesions she had and what was done. So ASRM actually works uh, well for patients who are desirous of fertility but it does not addresses the lesions at different locations, which is much better addressed in our hashtag Enzian classification, actually. So it is really good and it has made our practice and communication between the sonologist and the surgeon very, very smooth. Yeah, I definitely think so. I remember learning about the Enzian and I was like, why don't surgeons use that here in the US? But it's just not as common since the ASRM is common. And I know that a common criticism of the ASRM is that if a person has, let's say, stage three endometriosis, it's like, well, what does that mean? If I have stage three and this other person has stage three and this other person, you know, we have 10 people who have stage three and the surgeon gets in there and stage three can look completely differently because it's all based on, you know, points. Yeah. Whereas the Enzian system. It's not specify the location. Exactly. Yeah. Where the Enzian system is like, oh, for example, oh, three it means, I don't know what it means. More than seven centimeter ovarian cyst. It's so easy. You see? Wow. Look at that. (laughs) Yeah. It's so precise and it's so easily translatable to different people involved. As you said, your ultrasound person gives you here, this is the hashtag Enzian. And then you're like, yes, I know exactly where it is. And you're not left there guessing. So I just, I think that's really interesting. I'm wondering about When you do excision surgery, so we know that endometriosis can become more fibrotic over time. What exactly does that mean for excision? Like, do you excise the fibrosis or like, how do you deal with endometriosis that has become more fibrotic? Endometriotic lesion itself causes a lot of inflammation. 
so it causes a lot of scarring and fibrosis in and around so mostly when we excise the lesion with the clear margins the fibrosis and inflammation also goes away with that now most of the cases the fibrosis which is produced is by multiple surgeries rather than the endometriosis itself so doing multiple surgeries itself is a reason for fibrosis and surgery is also a trigger factor for inciting fibrosis so we just concentrate on the nodules and we get a clear margin of around 5 mm to 1 cm and we completely excise it and most of the cases the fibrosis goes away with that the residual fibrosis and the post operative period sometimes can develop that is where the pelvic physiotherapy helps so particularly we don't focus on the fibrosis part because it is more of a post operative component rather than the per operative component because when we remove the nodules most of the scarring and puckering caused by the nodule goes away itself how do you know what to excise how do you know what's endometriosis how do you know how deep to go you mentioned having a like a 1 cm margin but how do you know where the margins are of endometriosis identification of endometriosis is very important now endometriosis comes in all sizes shapes and colors the rainbow colors you can see you can see white lesions red lesions black lesions powder burn lesions orange lesions there are different lesions which you can see during a endometriosis so a endometriosis expert also recognizes endometriosis and excises it so it is very very important that how to recognize the lesions and remove them now deeper lesions we call them deep endometriosis when the lesion extends more than 5 mm depth so any lesion which is more than 5 mm depth is called as deep endometriosis it is basically if you like chopping off something or excising something it is like a scooping out something so when we excise endo we just scoop it out from the lowest margin and we remove it completely so identification of endometriotic lesions is very important if you want to remove it so how deep and wide to go uh, we usually say depth is depending on the nodules we can feel it through our instruments we can assess the depth and also our imaging has guided us second is wide we want to have a clear margin of at least 5 mm when we excise the lesions what do you do if you see tissue that you're not sure is endometriosis but you're not sure is healthy tissue how do you know when abnormal tissue is endometriosis yeah sometimes we suspect that it is endometriosis but it may not be so anyways we whatever we remove we send it for histopathological examination so on histopathology we will come to know but if it looks abnormal even if it is not endometriosis we tend to remove it during your surgery do you use robotic surgery and i'm also interested to know what instrument do you use for excision because i know that some excision surgeons use harmonic scalpel or lasers or cold scissors so i'm just wondering what do you use and is it robotic or not so i operate through both the methods i do laparoscopic surgery as well as robotic surgery now i would like to clarify here that laparoscopy or robotic they are only the tools it's the man behind the machine 
So patients do come and ask us that what is the difference in robotic and laparoscopic surgery? So I would like to say if I do laparoscopically or robotically, the surgery will be same. The outcome will be same. Now, if we talk about the difference in laparoscopic and robotic as a surgeon, yes, the depth perception is much better in robotic because of the 3D vision. And definitely for complex cases, it works well. As a surgeon, you can sit and operate for uh, the surgery, which lasts for seven to eight hours. If you do robotically, definitely a surgeon will be more comfortable. So precision is more, I agree, 3D vision is there. For complex cases, yes, it helps. But most of our surgeries are laparoscopic. That does not mean we are not doing the same job as done by the robotic. So both the surgeries are same. It all depends on the expertise. Like ultrasound and MRI, the expertise is important. Be it laparoscopic or robotic, the surgeon is important. I wanted to clarify this because this is a very common question asked by our patients as well. So it's a tool. How you use the tool is important. Now, when we talk about the Indian scenario, it is not possible for us to do robotic surgery for all because of the cost involved. All insurance companies do not cover the robotic cost. So it is not possible for us to do robotic for everyone, but definitely Given the chance, I would love to use the technology for all my patients. But we are doing equally good job at laparoscopy. A straight, strict surgery is being done worldwide and we are achieving the great results with that. Yes, robotic is an advanced version of it. Now, coming to the tools which I use for excising. Yes, I use cold scissors when the nodules are very near to very important structures or nerves or vessels where the damage with the electrical instrument can happen. We use cold scissors. And in cases of electric sources, we use monopolar cautery. We use harmonic scalpel. Plasma and lasers, we are not using much in our practice, although we have a CO2 lasers with us. Uh, but we are not using it actively. So monopolar, uh, harmonic scalpel and cold scissors are our main tools with which we excise endometriotic lesions. And laparoscopic and robotic, be it any way of surgery, it should be done by an expert who can excise endometriosis completely. How do you feel about excision on teenagers? We cannot recommend excision for everyone. Now, when it comes to teenagers, we have to be very judicial and we have to weigh the pros and cons of this surgery on a teenager. Now, what stage her disease is, what are her symptoms, all that has to be taken into consideration. A teenager who has painful periods and is detected with a very early endo, first, I would like to try medical therapy in terms of birth control pills and progesterone-only pills because a teenager, lesions, I would like to give enough time for her lesions to develop fully before I excise them because they just started their menarche and they have started experiencing symptoms. The lesions will not be fully developed. There is a chance that we may miss the lesions and she may land up with multiple surgeries in a short span of interval. So for teenagers, surgery is not the first choice. We have to see her symptoms, the stage of the disease, 
and how it is going to impact her in the long term. So first, definitely we would try with the medication. If that doesn't work, we would like to see the interval growth of the lesions on imaging and then take a decision on that. But sometimes we have come across teenagers who have big, big ovarian cysts or endometriomas. In those cases, we might take a surgery as the first choice. So it is the decision of surgery on teenagers has to be tailored according to their stage of the disease, age of the patient and their expected outcomes from surgery. Yeah, I really like that you discuss with the patient the pros and the cons of doing surgery now, of waiting. And, you know, I like that your approach is really patient-centered because it sounds to me like you really give the patient all of the information and then you allow the patient to make the choice that they feel is best for their care with input on using your knowledge and your experience. And I, I think that's really important. I wanted to clarify with you what you use medical therapy for, like hormonal therapy, like birth controls, oral contraceptive pills or progesterone, because you just mentioned, you know, potentially putting the patient on that. And then you had also mentioned earlier about using that post-operatively because periods can be very painful post-excision. So I just wanted to clarify with you, what is the role of medical therapy in endometriosis? Is it actually treating the disease or is it symptom management only? Now, in endometriosis, medical therapy does not work. All of us know that. So it does reduce your symptoms. Uh, for sorry, the I'll just say, trust me, not all doctors know that. <laughs> but yes, they should know that. They definitely should know that. We Most of the patients know that, but many of our doctors do not know yeah. that. But sorry to interrupt you. Keep going. So in endometriosis, medical therapy does not work, Amy. The medical therapy suppresses your symptoms. Now, there are a wide range of drugs available in the market, and they are marketed as endometriosis treating agents, and sometimes they claim to cure endometriosis as well. So we do not believe in a medical therapy. We usually advise excision surgery, but again, the treatment has to be tailored to one's needs. Now, most of our patients, we do excision and postoperatively, as I already said that, first two, three periods can be more painful. So we do put them on a progesterone-based therapy or a popular drug nowadays is in the market called as Dynogest. And some surgeons prefer to put them on oral contraceptive pill. But if you don't give any medication also, it is absolutely fine. Now, these medications, what they do is they either inhibit ovulation or there are drugs which are centrally acting, such as GnRH analogs, which inhibit your ovaries through the central action. So basically, they create a, a phase of anovulation or a stage of pseudomenopause. But these are all temporary. Once we stop them, the lesions keeps growing or your symptoms may subside, but the lesions keep growing. So there is a subset of patients where they come to us. We counsel them for surgery, but they do not want surgery. And their disease is not as violent as very painful or it is hampering their quality of life. So in these patients, we do offer them a interval treatment and we give them some, okay, we will give you some medications maybe for three months and then we will check your lesions. Now on imaging, if their lesions are growing, definitely they will understand that medicine is not working. Maybe her pain is subsiding, 
our symptoms are coming down, but the disease is progressing. So these subset of patients where they don't want immediate surgery and they want to watch for interval growth, we give them a time of three months and we put them on medical therapy. And post-operatively, most of the patients, they are counseled for these therapies and then we start them on some medical treatment. Most of our patients, we don't prescribe GNRH analogs. I think we will be discussing this further as well. As I already discussed, the teenage group. Now, teenage group, the problem is the lesions have not developed fully yet. That is the reason we opt for medical therapy first so that her lesions develop fully and then we take her for excision. So, tailoring the treatment to one's disease is very important in endometriosis and radicality of the surgery according to one's requirement is very, very important because one size does not fit all in endometriosis. So do not assume that when I said that teenage patients with endometriosis, I would like to put them on medical therapy. There is a reason behind it. There is a science behind it why I'm saying that. But in a full-grown patient or an adult patient, endometriotic therapies or the so-called medical therapies do not work they may reduce your pain, they may reduce your symptoms, but the lesions, the endometriotic nodules, they keep growing. Yeah, I know Dr. Redwine spoke about how in his research, he found that in patients who are adolescents, many times the lesions continue developing until they're in their early to mid-20s. So, you know, that makes sense that you would potentially want to wait until the person has more developed lesions so that you could just do one good surgery and get all the lesions and not subject the patient to multiple surgeries. I also think it's really great that you counsel the patient on what medical therapy is for, which as you said, it's for suppressing symptoms and it's not for treating the disease. And I think when the patient has that knowledge, we can actually have an informed consent and we can make better decisions. So I know I laughed earlier when you said everyone knows that (laughs) medical treatment doesn't treat endo, but not everyone knows. Trust me, there's so many doctors that believe that, oh, you can use medical treatment like Lupron after surgery to clean up any lesions that were missed. And it's, it's just really refreshing to speak to doctors and have doctors that know that the purpose of these medications is to help the patient with the symptoms. No, after so many awareness sessions, I have started assuming that everyone knows that. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you mentioned GnRH drugs. What is your opinion on GnRH drugs? You said that you don't typically prescribe them. What do you think about them? Now, GnRH analogs are centrally acting drugs, which usually suppress your ovaries completely and produce a stage of menopause in the body. So the theory behind giving these drugs is that if your ovaries are not working, all these lesions will not work. It's not like that because endometriotic lesions have their own hormones. They produce their own hormones. So the lesion growth does not stop. Apart from that, these GnRH analogs, when they produce a stage of menopause in the body, they cause a lot of menopausal changes. The bone loss, depression, fatigue, hot flushes, long-term memory loss, and Patients have also encountered permanent ovarian loss. So these are the things which uh, make this drug where uh, we refrain from using it. 
but this is a market driven i would say because it has been instilled in the gynecologist mind that gnrh drug is like a complete cure for endometriosis patients who have taken like six doses 12 doses of gnr analogs and it is really not acceptable so we do not prescribe gnr analogs but yes again there is a subset of patients which have adenomyosis as well and their ivf consultant or a reproductive medicine specialist wants them to give uh, one or two doses for down regulation those cases are little different from purely treating endometriosis with a gnr analog we usually don't recommend but yes in some cases where it is recommended by their reproductive specialist in those cases one or two doses are given how long was your longest surgery for endometriosis for excision uh, approximately the longest was around 7 to 8 hours where we did her uh, segmental resection and she had a uterosacral nodule compressing the ureter and causing a gross hydrourethral necrosis with almost permanent renal damage so in this case we had a urosurgeon involved a colorectal surgeon involved and we were there so this lasted for around 7 to 8 hours can you explain what it means to do a nerve sparing surgery and i'm just wondering when you're excising how do you know that you're not cutting a nerve now uh, a thorough knowledge of pelvic anatomy and the blood supply and the nerve supply is very important for a excision surgeon nerve sparing surgery is an emerging technique for surgery related dysfunction so it was seen that many of the cancer surgeries when they were removing everything patient had post operative bowel and bladder related issues so that is how the nerve sparing surgery came into picture where surgeons evolved the technique and tried to save the nerve supplying to the bladder and bowel so we have a autonomic nervous system we have a complete plexus of nerves where it takes care of your bowel emptying bladder emptying bladder filling voiding so if we sever those nerves or we injure those nerves there is a chance that they may have a long term bladder and bowel dysfunction so this has evolved over past 15 years understanding of anatomy of the pelvic autonomous nervous system has made it so easy now when we do the surgery we dissect the tissues or the parametrium where these nerves are we can identify these slender structures and we try not to damage them now when there is a bilateral involvement the chances of nerve injury are more when there is a unilateral involvement the chances of nerve injury are less so these cases it all depends on the surgeon and the technique they use so identification comes with practice and it is very important for any surgeon to know the anatomy we learn these techniques through cadaveric dissection we have seen these all the structures on the cadaver we have dissected on the cadaver that is how we are able to identify and preserve the nerve during these radical surgeries that is why we always say the radicality of the surgery in endometriosis has to be there with preservation of organ function so if i am compromising the organ function then my purpose of doing the surgery is lost so radicality of endometriosis surgery with organ preservation is the dictum which we follow 
the more and more that you speak and you explain about excision, the more it just keeps hammering home for me a point that we have heard over and over is just that the skills and the experience and the knowledge and training of the surgeon really does matter. It's just really crucial for the outcome of the excision surgery and of the patient. All right, I have one last question about general excision, and then I want to move on to endometriomas. And the question is, when you get a patient before you and the patient has had a previous ablation surgeries, are you able to tell, does the tissue look different inside of the patient when the person has had a previous ablation surgery? Yes, most of the patients, when we operate those patients, ablation was done. Uh, on our surgery, we find that area to be a little black and it is like kind of a burnt, old burnt lesion and with a puckering and a little fibrosis. So it is easily identifiable and we can differentiate it from a fresh endolesions. And I know a lot of patients have this question. It's not a problem to do excision on a patient that has already had previous ablation surgeries. Is that right? No, not at all. Because the lesion is still there. They have just burned the superficial surface. So the depth of the lesion is there. We can always scoop it out. Great. Now I'd love to move on to endometriomas. When a patient has an endometrioma and you're removing the endometrioma, I've heard some surgeons say that removing an endometrioma takes a high level of skill because it can be very complex since the endometrioma, especially if it's very large, you know, can have the obliterated cul-de-sac. The endometrioma can be stuck to all these different structures and surfaces within the pelvic region. So can you just talk a little bit about removing the endometrioma? Now, having an endometrioma, I would say is the most complex cases because I have heard doctors or surgeons saying that I have a quick endometrioma surgery. That's not the case because 85% of the endometriomas are associated with lesions somewhere else. And most of the cases, the uterosacral will be involved. So endometriomas are the most complex surgeries. And there are two types of endometriomas, the type 1 and type 2. Type 1 endometriomas are less than 3 centimeter. The type 2 endometriomas are more than 3 centimeter. In terms of surgical complexities, the type 1 endometriomas are little adherent to the ovarian tissue. So sometimes we find it difficult in peeling it off. The type 2 endometriomas, which are bigger than 3 centimeter, they may be adhered to different organs and also to the pelvic side walls. And they are filled up with a chocolate material. Actually, basically, that is the old blood with changed color. But when we drain it, it looks like a dark brown color and it is called as chocolate cyst in a layman's language. Scientifically, it is called as endometrioma. Now, when we do these surgeries, we have to take precautions when we separate the cyst wall from the ovarian tissue because there can be a significant loss of ovarian reserve in these cases. And in very, very big endometriomas, sometimes we also have to do ovarian reconstruction of the residual ovarian tissue. So these are the challenges which are faced by the surgeons when they deal with endometriomas. Now, endometriomas are complex surgeries and they are associated with some or other lesions in most of the cases. So always uh, we look for where all other organ involvement is there. Because many of time patients also come to us, they say, doctor, I only have one cyst. Doctor told us it's, it's a very simple procedure. 
so it is not like that the endometriomas have to be addressed as like other endometriosis surgeries where the bowel is involved or the ureter is involved because they do not occur alone and precautions to be taken regarding the preservation of the ovarian reserve and the future fertility outcomes from endometrioma excision what's the biggest endometrioma you've ever seen oh you will be amazed to know that the biggest endometrioma i have removed had a chocolate material of 11 liters and 200 ml so this case we have published also in the journal of endometriosis and pelvic pain disorders so this lady walked into my outpatient department and i thought she is a pregnant lady and i was surprised ki i have never seen this patient and uh, has she come for a delivery here so surprisingly with such a big endometrioma she never had any pain she had one child she delivered approximately 4 to 5 years back and then she thought maybe post delivery her abdomen size is increasing because she is not exercising and she is not doing any activity and she is at home all the time and she had almost a 9 months big abdomen where uh, she presented to us and we did laparoscopy for her after ruling out all the other tumors and chances of cancer we directly went into the cyst and we drained it 11 liters 200 ml of chocolate material and uh, i think that that's very very big very very big this was the largest i have done and many more we have done where 1 liter 1 and a half 750 ml of chocolate material was drained oh my gosh i'm just sitting here the listener cannot see us on video but i'm just sitting here with my mouth gaping open because 11 liters is so much that's like roughly i'm going to say like 44 glasses of material i drink a liter of water a day so i'm just imagining like 11 large water bottles before me and i'm just wow they really can get to be really big and i guess that leads me to my next question which is in your experience do endometriomas always grow when you have an endometrioma or have you seen that they reach like a stable size i think patients wonder if they're with their gynecologist who's not an excision surgeon who's not very well trained in endometriosis they're told that they have an endometrioma or a chocolate cyst i think sometimes the question is when do i consult an excision surgeon for this is my endometrioma going to continue to grow and get larger and larger what's your opinion on this now uh, like endometriotic lesions endometrioma also keep growing so whenever they menstruate or there is a continuous hormonal production by the endometriotic lesions there will definitely be some growth but we have also seen for some patients they have 3 to 4 cm endometrioma and they're not willing for surgery and the size of the endometrioma remains constant over the years so it is very important how we monitor them and how we uh, take them because i would not say that all endometriomas grow enormously or they will Uh, rapidly grow within 6 months or 1 year and they will become double the size and all endometriomas grows it's not like that so some of the endometriomas may remain the same size they don't grow they do not involve any other organ and patient is also asymptomatic they can follow up with their doctor and have a interval growth changes and then decide on excision so it is very important what are the other organs involved where are the other nodules along with the endometrioma as i said only 15% of the patients 
they occur alone and 85% of the patient there is some extra ovarian involvement so we need to see where the involvement is what harm it can do or are we losing any organ function so treatment decision should depend on all these factors and no all endometriomas do not grow so rapidly we can monitor them if they are small in size 3 to 4 cm there are no other lesions involved we can definitely monitor them if there is no growth in size or uh, there is no symptoms patient is facing and they want to wait for surgery definitely they can defer their surgery and look for uh, excision surgery at a later date as well so it all depends on the patient symptoms and fertility issues and the lesions involved and are we compromised on any other organ function along with the endometrioma so these are the factors which we take into consideration before deciding them for the surgery so once more i'm hearing that one size does not fit all and that it really depends on so many factors when it comes to the endometriosis patient's care now you mentioned about monitoring the endometrioma is it possible to tell the difference between an endometrioma and an ovarian cyst that is not an endometrioma for example a hemorrhagic cyst is it possible to tell that difference on an ultrasound if a patient was told they have a cyst by their regular gynecologist who doesn't have a lot of experience in endometriosis how could the patient is it possible for the patient to know oh actually this is an endometrioma or actually this is you know a functional cyst that's going to go away so on ultrasound a hemorrhagic cyst appears like a collection or with a reticular pattern there will be very thin fibrin strands intercrossing throughout the cyst whereas a endometrioma we can see low level internal eicosids inside so a trained sonologist can very easily tell that it is a hemorrhagic cyst and this is a endometrioma now from the patient's perspective if they want that how to differentiate because most of the hemorrhagic cysts should disappear with the next cycle so they can request for a repeat scan in a month or two in between fifth to ninth day of their cycle so if it is a hemorrhagic cyst it would have disappeared if it is a endometrioma it will persist because endometriomas don't disappear so it's a very uh, regular uh, reticular net like pattern in a hemorrhagic cyst and low level internal eicosids in a endometriotic cyst to endometriomas ever rupture and if they do rupture what happens to the cyst wall when it ruptures yes endometriomas do rupture and patients present to emergency with acute abdomen they will have severe pain tenderness vomiting and sometimes fever as well and for some it ruptures they have a acute episode of pain and then some cases it subsides the pain subsides and they just leave it now what happened to the cyst wall the cyst wall remains attached to the ovary endometrioma is if you can imagine a ball within a ball there are two coverings like the outer covering is the ovarian tissue the inner covering is ovarian cyst wall and inside is the chocolate material filled up now if it ruptures it will break from some point you can also imagine a balloon with a balloon with a water now the outer balloon is the ovarian tissue the inner balloon is the cyst wall and the water inside now if you rupture it the water will come out or the chocolate material will come out which causes irritation and pain and the cyst wall remains attached to the ovarian tissue and that can only be removed surgically 
So if we leave the cyst wall, the chances of forming the cyst will be there again. So many a times we also get patients who have been operated for endometrioma and their endometrioma was only drained. So in drainage, they give an incision on that cyst. They take out the chocolate material and they leave the cyst wall then and there. And it leads to the reformation of endometrioma. So cyst wall remains there only if it, even if it ruptures. But that chocolate material inside the peritoneal cavity causes a lot of inflammation and irritation, which leads to their acute pain abdomen and they present to us in emergency. Uh, thank you so much for telling us about endometriomas. I think you've answered a lot of questions that we as patients have, and I would love to move on to bowel endometriosis. Now, many patients are misdiagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome or IBS, and I'm just curious, is there any difference between the symptoms of IBS and bowel endometriosis? How could a patient potentially know that their digestive symptoms or the symptoms that they're having is bowel endometriosis and not IBS? Yes, there is a significant overlap in symptoms between IBS and bowel endo, where patients present with bloating, painful defecation, passage of blood in, during the bowel movements alternating diarrhea and constipation. But if a patient has these symptoms aggravated during periods, it is most commonly attributed by endometriosis. So if they have only IBS and no endometriosis, their symptoms will be there throughout the month. But they get aggravated or they are out of proportion when they have their periods. So this is how they can differentiate from bowel endometriosis and IBS symptoms. Most of the bowel endometriosis are diagnosed as IBS because bowel endo is not picked up on ultrasound by many of the sonologists. So again, a reason for delayed diagnosis and misdiagnosis. So we have seen these patients going to multiple specialists, going to medical gastro, going to gastro surgeon, even urologist, but they end up with not having a diagnosis. So we have to correlate with their symptoms, with the cycles, either pre-menstrually or during the menstruation or post-menstruation. What is the difference in their symptoms they notice? So this is how we can pick it up and diagnose them correctly. Now, you mentioned earlier with the treatment of bowel endometriosis that the patient could potentially need a segmental resection. I know that there's other methods for treating bowel endometriosis, such as shaving or discoid resection. Can you talk a little bit about what these different treatment methods are and when you would potentially use shaving versus a resection, for example? The bowel endometriotic lesions, they can be superficial and deep. Now, if it only involves the serosa, that is just the superficial layer of the bowel, we prefer to do a shaving. Many people have a misconception that shaving is incomplete excision. So shaving is not incomplete excision. It is for the superficial lesions on the bowel. Now, discoid and segmental resection, when the lesion has penetrated till mucosa and size of the lesion is less than 3 cm and it is an isolated lesion, we prefer to do a discoid excision. Now, discoid excision is removing completely and either with a stapler or removing it through and through and suturing it. So this is how a disc of the bowel is removed. 
Now, segmental resection we recommend for patients who have lesion more than three centimeter, or they have multiple lesions where a segment of the bowel is involved. The circumference of the bowel involved is more than fifty percent. Definitely, segmental resection is recommended for them. Now, patients should also be counselled about the pros and cons of segmental and discoid excision versus shaving. Many of the excision experts sometimes patients who have little bigger lesion in our practice also we do a little bigger lesion and patient is not ready for resections or uh, discoid. We try to shave it off as much as possible and with the superficial serosal suturing. Again, it has to be tailored to the patient's lesions and what patient is expecting as the outcome. When we do a segmental resection, we do have to counsel them about the post-operative leakage, anastomotic leakage, rectal fistula. So, how the patient accepts those complications is very very important. But overall, depending on the size and extent of involvement, guides us through the decision making. If it is a very superficial lesion, not invading through the mucosa and muscularis, it is shaving. If it is lesion less than three centimeter involving the muscularis or mucosa, it's a discoid. And if lesion are multiple and more than three centimeter, definitely a segmental resection is recommended. I've heard some surgeons talk about the importance of the distance from the anal verge when it comes to excision with bowel endometriosis that is near the rectum. Can you talk a little bit about what's the anal verge and what's important when? looking into excision so close to the rectum? Most of the endometriosis on the bowel happens in the rectosigmoid location. Now, the rectum ends up into the anus, which is the distal part of our digestive system. Now, this is called as LAVD, actually, the lesion to anal verge distance. What we do is, on sonology, during the sonographic assessment, the distal end of the lesion from there, the distance is taken to the anal verge with the help of the transvaginal probe. That distance, if it is more than four to five centimeter, that is considered as a safe distance. Why it is considered as a safe distance? Because in these cases, when we remove the bowel endo or we do a segmental resection, the chances of rectal fistula or anastomotic leak are less. But if somebody's lesion, the distal end of the lesion is less than four centimeters from the anal verge, we should recommend them for a ileostomy. Like they will have a stoma bag. It is during the first excision surgery only. I'm not talking about the complication. We should not recommend segmental resection for them. We should recommend a ileostomy and resection of the endometriotic lesion. Now, in these cases, if the distance between the anal verge and the endometriotic lesion is less, the healing will not be proper. So they land up in more post-operative complications. So what we do is we block the distal end, the anal verge end, and we take out a stoma in terms of ileostomy or colostomy through the abdominal wall, and we give them a stoma bag for three months. And then at a later date, we join it back. 
this is very important this should also be assessed surgically after doing the dissection when we have located the uh, lesion on the rectum through the anus we can insert a rectal probe during the surgery and we can mark the anal verge on the rectal probe and see the distance if it is less than 4 cm to 5 cm we usually take a consent beforehand only that we might land up with a stoma in your case so this lavd the lesion to anal verge distance is important in decision making for whether we are going for a segmental resection or we are going for a colostomy or ileostomy for the patient thank you for explaining that i actually think that in my case my endometriosis was too close to the anal verge after in my post op appointment my surgeon told me that they left behind about 10% of the endometriosis that was like the rectal endometriosis that he had gotten the majority and i definitely feel those effects like i have seen a huge increase in my quality of life and a decrease in my pain and my inflammation my fatigue my symptoms so you know even with removing 90% of the endometriosis the excision i it's been a huge help to me but i didn't understand why he had left behind the endometriosis in my rectum and then i had an appointment post operatively with the gi surgeon and he explains not exactly how you explained it about the anal verge but he just said that you know when endometriosis is really close to the anus it can make resection more have higher risks and that in my own case when he assessed it he didn't think that the benefits outweighed the risks so he had made his decision to leave that behind but then i actually heard you speaking in one of your youtube presentations about endometriosis talking about the anal verge and then it kind of clicked for me that maybe this is what happened in my own case where the surgeon said you know it was too close to your anus and it, you could have had a chance of a lot more complications he told me my hospital stay would have been a lot longer and since they hadn't told me all of that preoperatively as well they had made the decision that it was best to just get what they could since they did manage to get the vast majority of the endometriosis and to leave that part so thank you for explaining that and it's also really nice that you counsel your patients on all of that preoperatively and you do get such extensive scans done so that you can try to really inform the patient of everything because i feel in my own case although i'm so grateful to my surgeon my excision surgeon and the colorectal surgeon that was involved there were so many questions i didn't know that i had that weren't answered like doing this information session with you has just answered so many questions that i have about excision and about endometriomas and bowel surgery and it would have been really nice to go into my appointments with all of this knowledge that you're sharing with us today rather than with the limited knowledge that i had so i didn't even know what questions to ask my surgeon or yeah very thorough explanations are so appreciative tell me a little bit about hysterectomy for endometriosis or for your patients when do you consider a hysterectomy for the patient hysterectomy does not work for endometriosis hysterectomy is not a cure many of the patients are told that you get your uterus removed and everything will be fine so until unless a patient has adenomyosis we do not recommend hysterectomy for them hysterectomy we recommend for patients who have associated adenomyosis or they have any other pathology like uterine fibroids or causing uh, abnormal uterine bleeding so for only endometriosis if you ask me hysterectomy does not work because the disease is outside the uterus 
So definitely it is not a acceptable solution for endometriosis patients. A patient who is undergoing surgery for endometriosis at the age nearing her menopause, if she requests or she wants it because of abnormal uterine bleeding or irregular uh, spotting issues and other issues, then we may consider hysterectomy. But otherwise, if no adenomyosis or she is not having any other pathology, we do not recommend a hysterectomy for endometriosis. How can you tell when a patient has adenomyosis? Amy, it's very simple. Uh, you put an ultrasound probe, you'll get to see that she has adenomyosis. Now, in adenomyosis, there is a MUSA criteria which sonologists follow, morphological ultrasonographic assessment. So they can easily classify adenomyosis. Now, adenomyosis is of different types. It can be focal, it can be diffuse, it can be adenomyoma or focal adenomyosis of outer myometrium, which is a manifestation of deep infiltrating endometriosis onto the uterine surface. Now, there are various signs which we can see on ultrasound. There is a disproportionate thickening of the anterior and posterior wall in adenomyosis. There is a shadowing sign. There is loss of junctional zone. So these are very, very easy to pick up on ultrasound. So adenomyosis can be diagnosed on ultrasound very easily. If not, then MRI is advised. Sometimes they also are reported as fibroids. Now, adenomyoma, like a focal thickening of the myometrium, uh, which is also called as adenomyoma, is misinterpreted as fibroid and ultrasound. But believe me, if the sonologist is trained or the gynecologist is trained to look at the ultrasound, they can easily pick up adenomyoma and fibroids. There should not be any confusion. So diagnosing adenomyosis is very, very easy. Clinically, they will have painful periods and heavy bleeding, infertility issues, pain, bloating, fatigue. Most of the symptoms with endometriosis do overlap. But bleeding and progressive pain is most common symptom along with infertility and diagnosis is very easy with clinical examination and ultrasound. I want to point out for a minute that I think here in the United States, the majority of our ultrasound technicians are just not as advanced as in other parts of the world. I know that in other parts of the world, I think like Brazil, Australia, from what you're talking about, at least your sonographer in India, when they're doing ultrasounds for endometriosis, they're really taking the time to do these longer, a longer look, you know, 30 to 40 minutes. As you mentioned, sometimes the patient is asked to use a stool softener or even do laxatives the day before to do that emptying out of the bowel. And then they're going in there, typically the transvaginal ultrasound, and they're looking in a systematic way at the different compartments, moving from one to another to another, slowly taking in all the details, also looking at the way that the organs, the movement of the organs, the relation of the organs, like the uterus to the bowel. And, um, you know, it's just funny. I think of all the ultrasounds I've had when they've just like put in the probe for like three minutes and they're like, oh, there's nothing there. Bye. And you know, so I, I just want to clarify for our listeners when we talk about how different things can be picked up on the ultrasound that these really are technicians who are trained in techniques to look for endometriosis, to look for adenomyosis, to look for these various components of the disease. And oftentimes that's not what we're getting in our like regular standard 
gynecological care when we're like, oh, I have pelvic pain and they just bring you in, you know, and then they just have you there for five minutes. Uh, so many times they've told me we can't see anything because there's a lot of gas and shadows in there. And then that's it. And it's like, well, maybe I, you know, I don't know, could take a laxative and come back the next day. There's never like, in my experience, there hasn't been a lot of exploration via ultrasound, but that's not what's happening in other parts of the world. So I just wanted to acknowledge that. It's really great to see that as part of your excision team, that you have a really great ultrasound technician who just knows how to look for all the details of what's going on with a patient and then be able to, as you said, use the enzyme system and use these really clear systems to translate that information to you. So it's just really wonderful that you're able to use these scans to actually get real solid, important information, which can help the patient with their planning, with their treatment and can help you surgically. Two years back, I used to get those reports only, like only endometrioma, nothing is there. So I used to counsel the patient, ki, whatever I will get inside, I'll remove it. So I didn't have this sonologist in my team that time. So I also used to practice like US doctors, ki, whatever is the report will go in, whatever I find, I'll remove it. But now it, the counseling has become very, very easy with that sonologist. That's so great to hear. And I want to mention one last thing before we move on for any listeners who suspect they have adenomyosis is that a negative ultrasound or MRI doesn't mean that you don't have adenomyosis. So you can still have adenomyosis even if scans don't show any signs of it. And this is also the same for endometriosis. And as Vimy said earlier, not all endometriosis shows on scans either. All right. I have my last question for you. We made it to the end. Thank you so much. So here's my last question is just about bladder endometriosis and where do we usually see endometriosis on the bladder? And does the endometriosis often go fully through the bladder or is it just on the surface? Can you tell us a little bit about that? So bladder endometriosis usually we found on the base of the bladder and the dome of the bladder. The extra abdominal part of the bladder is not much involved, actually. Now, it can be a superficial endometriosis as well as deep endometriosis, which goes through the detrusor muscle. The superficial endometriosis usually will be on the peritoneal surface or the uh, uterovesical fold, which can be excised easily without compromising the integrity of the bladder. But the full thickness lesions, which involve the muscle, they have to be excised completely and with a catheter in place. And sometimes we also put the ureteric catheters for identification because when we are cutting it so that we don't compromise on the ureteric orifices. So full thickness bladder excision also requires suturing on the bladder in two layers so that we get a watertight compartment. And then postoperatively, the patient needs to put that catheter in place for two weeks. They can be discharged with the catheter, the police catheter in place. And we also need the help of urethrocystoscopy in these cases. We look inside the bladder and laparoscopically we look from outside. And then we sometimes cystoscopically we mark the edges of the bladder lesion. And then we go laparoscopically and excise that lesion completely so that we don't leave any of the endo. Uh, this is how we treat bladder endometriosis and full thickness endometriosis needs a complete, uh, you can compare it to a discoid excision of bowel endometriosis, where we are cutting a disc of the bowel and suturing it. Same like that in bladder endometriosis, we excise the disc of it or the complete 
endometriotic lesion and remove it. The superficial ones do not need suturing. The peritoneum can be stripped off the uterovesical fold. Well, thank you so much. We made it to the end of all of my questions, which I know were so many. I've definitely learned so much. And I think all of our listeners have learned so much. We've had so many important questions answered. Well, I would like to say thanks, Amy, for having me at your podcast. It was really nice interacting with you and hope our listeners will get benefited with this and they can go well prepared to their excision surgeon to discuss about their condition.